And now may no voice be heard but the voice of God in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> How many of you have seen the film The King's Speech? All right. For those of you who haven't, it's about the Queen Elizabeth's father, King George VI. He was not born to be king. He didn't want to be king. But through a bizarre series of events, lo and behold, he was king. And with the clouds gathering and the long ordeal of World War II, he was going to have to be the voice of the people and to the people to be their leader and inspiration. And he only had one problem. What was it? He couldn't speak. Right. Now, I don't know whether you can identify with that or not. But I know somebody who could, the Apostle Paul. Did you hear it in the reading of the New Testament lesson? He writes to the church at Corinth, recalling how he had come to them as an evangelist. And he says, I came to you in weakness and fear and trembling. Hey, this is Paul, the greatest church planter that ever was. A brilliant guy, well-educated champion of the faith, the breakout preacher who launched the gospel from Judaism to the whole Gentile world. So why the fear? Certainly not out of lack of ability. Must have been the congregation. <laughs> the church at Corinth. Were they that tough a crowd? Well, let's see. Corinth was a major Greek city, four times the size of Athens. It had two ports, one facing east and one facing west, so there was lots of business and lots of commerce. It was a buzzing city. The population was a mixed bag, ethnically and economically. Hmm. Sounds like Pittsburgh. <laughs> Corinth had elaborate temples and distinguished schools. Hmm. Sounds like Oakland. The church at Corinth, the church at Corinth was well-educated, bright, articulate, and gifted. Hmm. <laughs> but Paul was accustomed to dealing with people like that. This is this kind of people. So why the weakness and fear and trembling? Would it surprise you to hear that absolutely everybody who gets up into this pulpit to preach does it in fear and trembling? If, you, if we had a seismograph, you'd know it. <laughs> but why, you say? Well, not because we're uneducated and you're intimidating. Paul says it. Because we're proclaiming the mystery of God. We're proclaiming the mystery of God. Let me give you a contrast. I could get up here and give, I think, a fairly entertaining lecture on Shakespeare. And I could even propound a theory that the plays were actually written not by Shakespeare, but by a uh, serving wench named Buttery Betty. No problem. I hope you'd be persuaded. But I have to confess it's not a matter of life or death. But your response to the proclamation of the gospel is life or death. The mystery. Let's be clear about what that is. It's not a detective story, though I love to read them. In biblical usage, 
mystery is a truth that is beyond our brains to totally comprehend. A mystery is not irrational. It is supra-rational, beyond the grasp of our most brilliant brains. A classic example is the doctrine of the Trinity. Who could have thought that one up? The very idea of mystery is intolerable to people whose attitude is, if I don't understand it, it can't be true. In 1848, a German missionary named Johannes Rebmann went to Tanzania, and his guide told him about a huge mountain which was always white on top. Now, Rebmann was amazed. It was nowhere in his data. But he trusted his guide, and so day after day they trekked through the terrain, and it was difficult, but he kept going, and he started thinking, wait a minute, was this a myth? Was this a fiction? What was this? But suddenly, one morning at dawn, there it was, as if it arose out of nowhere, the mountain. It's a mile around the base, and there are two peaks, and they're snow-covered. Wow. So Redmond was so thrilled by this discovery that he wrote a report, and he sent it back to the Royal Geographic Society in London. And those august gentlemen sat in solemn conference and decided that he was lying. He must be a fraud. Why? Get this. Because there could be no mountain in that part of Africa. The mountain that couldn't be there was Mount Kilimanjaro. It's the highest mountain in Africa. But they denounced him as a fool and a fraud because they couldn't believe there could be a mountain in that place. What about us? Hearing a report of mystery, shall we declare it impossible? close our minds, roll our eyes. Some of us are good at that. And miss the mountain. The church at Corinth hadn't missed the mountain. They'd been there. But since then, they'd kind of lost their focus, and they were really busy arguing and quarreling over stuff like whose baptism was better than somebody else's baptism, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And so Paul is refocusing them, actually. He says, I didn't proclaim the mystery of God to you in brilliant academic argumentation, though I could have. You know, I wonder, can anybody be argued into the kingdom of God? I had a student named John who had faith issues, and we talked and we talked and we talked. And finally, one day I said to John, will you read one book? He said, yes, I will. I handed him C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. A week later, John came into my office and he threw that book on my desk and he said, there must be a hole in his reasoning, but I can't find it. (laughs) And he turned and stormed out of my office. Rationality didn't do it for John. I have spent more than four decades having discussions with people about gender equality And I argue from scripture, and very often the the person will finally say, I don't care what you say or what scriptural evidence you give me, I will not change my mind. If rationality nor scriptural exegesis will not win the hearts and minds of people, what will? Paul says it. 
I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, and him crucified. The cross of Christ is the ultimate mystery. All of history culminates in the cross or flows from it. It was the beginning of the great reversal from death to life. It is our gate to the kingdom, but above all, Jesus Christ crucified is the ultimate revelation of the God who is love. Emmanuel, God with us. Our God is not like the Greek gods and goddesses. They were sitting up on Olympus, quarreling, partying, otherwise having a good time, and didn't care at all about people except when they wanted to manipulate them. Our God, in the person of Jesus Christ, came to be one of us, to work, to sweat, to trudge in the dust, to be poor, to endure pain, and finally to die because that's what we do. Why? Love. Nothing else. I can't think of any other reason. There is no other reason. Scripture tells us that God is love. Now, that's not exactly breaking news, is it? Everybody in this room knows that. Absolutely everybody in this room knows it in your head. What I wonder is, do you know it in your gut? That's where you live. It's not that you don't grasp the concept of God's love. It's that you've not been grasped by the reality of God's love. God's capital L love is not a concept. It has a face and a name. And its name is Jesus. Capital love, capital L love is passionate. Think of Jesus moved by the hunger of a crowd, stopping to talk with a woman who has just reached to touch the fringe of his prayer shawl, heeding the cry of a blind man beside the road, weeping over Jerusalem, and pronouncing woe upon woe upon woe to the hypocrites. Capital L love didn't begin with Jesus. It goes much farther back than that. Every now and then I'll have somebody say to me, why did God start this whole thing in the first place? Well, I'll tell you why. Because of love. Uh, I don't want to disappoint you, but God doesn't need you. Or me. Here's what I mean. We need each other. We need God to survive. We need to do something to make us complete persons. God is complete already. So if he didn't create our universes, our galaxies, and all those wonders, and create us because he needed us, why did he? Because he wanted to. It says that in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 11, where the throngs are praising God around the throne. Glory and honor and power are yours, God, because you created all things, because you wanted to. He created you. Out of love. Catherine of Siena, a doctor of the church, prays, Eternal Father, you show me that you made us for one reason only. In your light, you saw yourself compelled by the fire of your love to give us being. In spite of the evil we would commit against you, Eternal Father, even though you saw all the ills, your evils your creatures would commit against your infinite goodness, You acted as if you did not see and set your eye only on the beauty of your creature. 
with whom you had fallen in love like one drunk and crazy with love. You are the fire, nothing but the fire of love, crazy over what you have made. That's it. God says to you and to me today, this moment, I made you and I'm crazy in love with you. Our Eucharistic prayer puts it a little less flamboyantly. In your infinite love, you made us for yourself. God's passionate love sounds and resounds throughout his word. Even when he's warning of judgment, he's calling out in love. Do you remember last week from Micah, we heard him. Oh, my people. Oh, my people. And today's reading from Isaiah. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. And farther down the passage, look, look. That's not wistful and wimpy. That's the mighty power of capital L love calling to us. The love that G.K. Chesterton called the furious love of God. The furious, furious love of God. Furious. Uh, Wait a minute, isn't that anger? No, not necessarily. Think about this. Have you ever had a project that you were beating a deadline on and you had to work furiously? I have had many students writing exams who, as the period was going on, would write more and more furiously. And some of you can play the guitar furiously. This has nothing to do with anger. It's urgency, intensity, focus, energy. Think fire. That's how God loves you and me. Furiously. Brennan Manning calls it the mysterious and furious longing of Jesus for you and me to live in his smile and hang on his words. Rich Mullins sang it. In the reckless, raging fury that they call the love of God. That's the mystery of Christ crucified. That's the truth your head cannot comprehend, but your heart can embrace. Let your heart catch the fire from the fire of God's furious love. Miguel de Unamuno, the Spanish philosopher, writes, Those who believe that they believe in God without passion in their hearts believe only in the God idea, not in God himself. So the question we each have to ask ourselves is, do I love God or do I love the idea of God? You may actually prefer to live in your head. It's a safer place. Because what's in your head need not affect your actions. You can keep all your stuff in your head and never let them get below your neck. Our Old Testament lesson talks about people who do that. God says, I see you fasting. I see you fasting. Do you think this is the kind of fast I really like? Because I know you're doing it, not because you love me, but because you think you have to. It's a fake fast. I'm not impressed. Let me see you feed the hungry and set the people free. Let me see you worship me out of love, not out of routine. 
with Valentine's coming, Valentine's Day coming up, think of it this way. God is saying to us, forget the long-stemmed red roses. You don't really love me. You're only doing that because everybody else is doing it and you feel that you have to. Tell you what, wait for spring, pick a dandelion, and bring it to me because you love me. Love as concept or love as flame? God's love for us is flame, furious flame. How about ours for him? Think about Romeo. We all know Romeo. But we may have forgotten that at the beginning of the play, Romeo declares himself to be madly in love with a girl named Rosalind. Now, he knows how a lover should act. So he acts like a lover. He does all the lover stuff. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't eat. He roams around. He doesn't play sports with the guys anymore. He moons around and writes poetry. Because that's what you do when you're a lover. But then one evening, oh, and he texts her all day long. (laughs) Then one evening, he goes to a party with his buddies, and he looks across the room, and he sees this girl. Whoa. Uh, That's not a direct quotation. (laughs) This is the real thing. Now he's really in love. And my point is that now he does the same things, but he does them entirely differently because now he really is the lover. He really is the lover. And when you catch fire with love from God and love for God, you may do the same things. You may come to worship. You may do Bible study. You may fast and pray and do all the other stuff that you can do. But I'll tell you guys, you'll be doing it out of a different place and it'll be a totally different experience than just going through the routine. Somebody say amen. 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 Yes. So the behavior for Romeo is no longer because he read the lover's manual, but because he's in love. Or you may be more like Benedict in Much Ado About Nothing. Now, he didn't want, not only did he not want to be in love, he was very scornful. He was sarcastic. He made fun of lovers. And he said, man, he would never be such a fool as to fall in love with anybody. But then he hears that a woman named Beatrice loves him secretly. She's a man hater. Instantly, when he hears this, his woman-hating posture crumbles, and he begins to behave like a lover. He spiffs up his appearance. He quits his all-male sports. He tries to write poetry, which is really pretty poor. Because, of course, beneath that facade of scorn, he really loves Beatrice loved her and she loves him but they've both been locked up behind their old defenses what frees them knowing that somebody loves them 
And that's what the love of God can do for you if you can really accept it. It'll set you free because you'll be so secure in the love of God. It'll free you from your old attitudes. It'll free you from worrying about what other people think. It will free you to be transformed by love. That's what God's furious love can and will do. You know perfectly well that I am not arguing you into a mindless faith. (laughs) I am saying with Hans von Balthasar, Blessed are not the enlightened whose every question has been answered and who are delighted by their own insight. Blessed, rather, are the chaste, the harassed, who must daily stand before God's enigmas and cannot solve them. So what shall we do with our unsettled arguments and nagging doubts? Well, I have a suggestion. Let's make a list of our favorite Christian debate topics. I think we could start with free will and predestination. Uh, We could move on to, well, just what does happen in the Eucharist? Uh, What's going to happen to people who have never heard the gospel? What is the origin of evil? How are we doing? (laughs) I'm sure you can think of more. So let's make our list. And let's go together with our list to the foot of the cross. And we can, so we can stand there and argue so that Jesus can hear us. Look at him. See his bruises and the mess of spit on his face. His hands and his feet are nailed down. The voice that shouted peace to the storm can scarcely rasp, I'm thirsty. His face is red and sore where they have ripped out clumps of his beard. His eyes are dark with pain, dimmed by blood running down from the crown of thorns. This is the creator and sustainer of the world. This is the Messiah. This is the king. As we look into his face, our oh-so-important questions will shrink into nothingness. Our doubts evaporate, and our strident voices fall silent in the presence of mystery. We can only stand mute in wonder. Engulfed in God's furious love, what can we do but return that love? Amen.